and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U AI. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. My guest today is the founder and CEO of one of the most interesting startups using machine learning that I've ever come across. He attended UC Santa Cruz, where he conducted research in synthetic biology, attempted to find Planet Nine, and spearheaded their iGEM team. Immediately afterwards, he set out to build the post-scarcity future with Ether Bio Machines, for which he was recently featured in Forbes Manufacturing 30 Under 30. Pavle Jermic, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Now, I normally start with how people were exposed to computer science and machine learning, and we'll get to that in a bit. But I wanted to ask you about your childhood before that. From what I've read, you had a very interesting experience immigrating to the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that has led into what you're doing today? Yeah, of course. I was born in the U.S., but I spent a lot of time growing up outside of the U.S. But my background, so my parents came here from former Yugoslavia right before war broke out. And that, that, that country is now like eight different countries, and it was not a, vi- it was not a peaceful separation by any means. And so while I was growing up, I had the unusual position of not only knowing that the country my parents came from didn't exist anymore, 
but also knowing that the country that even I was a, a dual citizen of was changing. I had different passports. They just kept changing. And while I was growing up, we would spend, both my parents are professors, so I would spend a good chunk of the year living in the United States in one university town or the other. And then we'd spend a good chunk of the year in Serbia or Yugoslavia or whatever country it was that year. And I had this dichotomy that everything was fine in the US. I, I had a relatively privileged upbringing growing up in university towns. And then I would spend time in Serbia where my friends were living next to craters and through bombing raids. And so the uh, I was always aware of how thin the veneer of civilization is. And I was always aware that things could go wrong in a really violent and dramatic way. So I never really took this for granted. And I became obsessed early on with trying to figure out how can we make sure that everyone in the world can experience the privileged life that I had? And how can we prevent those kind of disasters from happening ever again? And it's interesting you talk about uh, seeing how our political situation is so tenuous at times. We've yeah. recently, see, very recently, have seen this exact same thing. And even though the United States is in a privileged position, but not to get too much into politics, but to you said that you were going back and forth. So when did when were you exposed to computer science or yeah. biology, whatever you started with? I have the fortune that both my parents are professors and they're both engineers. So my mom is electrical engineering. My father is civil engineering. And so at a very young age, I was exposed to computer science and the concept of programming. They both program a lot. My dad does a lot of simulations and a lot of complex computer work. And so that combined with reading an enormous amount of sci-fi meant I was always obsessed with computer science and programming. And biology actually came much later. There are no biologists in my family. I'm the first to even probe that area. Everyone else is just electrical engineers or nuclear engineers. Um, so the first exposure to computer science was actually the iPhone. I didn't program a lot. I took a few programming classes and summer camps like in elementary school, but I didn't program a lot on my PC at the time. And actually I used to a lot because my dad is a hardcore Linux user. I barely use Windows for me was for gaming because running a, a VM on Ubuntu is just a pain in the ass and never hasn't been. The first exposure was the iPhone. The iPhone came out. My parents got each one, uh, got their own. And I got really excited about the idea of programming applications. It was like, this was something that could be very tangible, could be fast, and you could actually build something with it. You could build a company. I went through this brief year and a half phase of just learning how to program on the iPhone, building very simple applications. I don't think I ever got anything approved to be on the app store, to be honest, but also I was like 10. So, but I, what I remember about it, what's interesting is I actually remember it being almost discouraging because I, growing up, I wanted to change the world and I've always wanted to change the world and I wanted to have this impact in the world. And I started to struggle to see how could I connect making an app on the iPhone, like a game to actually having that human level impact. And actually, to be honest, it turned me off programming for a couple of years because I hadn't learned about machine learning. I hadn't been exposed to the types of algorithms that could really have that impact. I knew my parents did stuff, but that was just like way beyond what I understood at the time. And so I took this kind of detour through becoming obsessed with physics and then finally being exposed to biology, which then there was this roundabout way of coming back and saying, wait a second, can we take the predictability and the modularity and the concept of software engineering and can we apply them and especially machine learning and could we apply them to biology to solve these problems yeah i was reading one of your interviews with your alma mater where 
you said that it was, quote, abundantly clear that biology could solve the problem of scarcity and create a future where industrial productivity is so high that it's rare for humans not to have what they need. So that seems like that's a very bold statement. And for the bio unaware like me and presumably the majority of my audience, that seems uh, quite far out there. So how do we get from where we are now into whatever that future would look like? Great question. And just to be clear, this is not going to take two years. This is a, there's a 40 year plan behind this and I may be dead before it's done. And that's okay. The, when we think about what I call the post-scarcity future, what we're talking about is we're not talking about some weird techno communist future where everyone has exactly the same life. I know there's people out there that think about that. I have my own opinions on that, but it's a separate conversation. The, what we're talking about is, can we make sure that our economy is so productive that the desperation that leads people to commit atrocities almost never happens? Because if, if you're in a country and a certain critical mass of the population can no longer provide for their children and doesn't know where the next meal is going to come from for their children or for them, that's when bad shit happens very quickly. Stuff breaks down almost immediately because human beings will do anything for their children. And that's when demagogues take over. So how do we make that line almost impossible to cross? And a part of that is asking the question, well, how do we actually produce goods today? And why do they cost a certain amount? The key to this is considering the raw materials that are used to produce products and the cost of those raw materials. And then how can we reduce the cost of producing and rearranging those atoms to the point where they are approximate to the cost of the raw materials themselves? The example I often give is the iron in the frame of a car, right? There's iron in dirt. There's titanium in dirt, a little bit less. There's cobalt in dirt. How can we build a technology that can take advantage of that local abundance? and produce useful products from it. What we're doing there is building technology that produces these products at the microscopic and the nanoscopic scale, right? That's, that's what you would need. I'm not, not necessarily biology, but if you wanted to do this, you would have to figure out how to rearrange those atoms on an atom by atom level or groups of atoms. And the way we build products today is very crude and macroscopic, right? Whether you're building a steel alloy you are superheating it under certain conditions, desperately trying to cajole a bunch of atoms to get together using a very crude heat-driven process, or whether you're producing large-scale chemicals and using a factory that takes up 30 football fields and spews a bunch of pollutants out. The way, at the end of the day, it's all chemistry. The way chemistry is done today is macroscopic, it's crude, it's inefficient, and no way in hell can you take 10 tons of dirt and get a few iron bricks out. That's just not, there's not, that's not going to work with modern processes. So early on, when I was trying to figure out how could we actually build this fusion, how could we get this cost curve to that point, I knew that we needed to reduce the cost, but I couldn't understand what technology exists that could actually do that. You'd read a lot of sci-fi about nanotechnology. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov talked about it a lot. But it, be, being raised by engineers, I couldn't see a connection to real technology and how that could actually work until late in middle school and early in high school. I was exposed to synthetic biology. And what happened was that I realized that biology, including your and my bodies, every living thing on this planet, these systems are not just incredible from a technological perspective, but they use nanomachines. The way you take your food that you eat in the morning or my chocolate fuel bar that I eat in the morning and convert that into parts of me 
is through nanomachines that break down all those molecules and rearrange the atoms and build them back up into me. And so I learned about this and I was like, holy shit, can I curse on this podcast? I don't know. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, awesome. I do. It's a habit. It's holy shit. We could take these machines and actually start to reprogram them to build products that maybe are natural, but that we would like to use. And then we could start to think about how do we actually eventually take dirt and build that and, and turn it into a brick of iron or pull out valuable metals or something like that. So that's the genesis of this idea is if we are to build the post-Garcia future, we have to rethink how we build materials and uh, molecules. Doing so requires a nanoscale manufacturing process that just doesn't exist today. And the only thing that's even remotely close is biology. So why don't we start with biology? And then once we get good at that, we can start using those machines to build more complex machines that you wouldn't really call biology anymore. So when we look forward and we think, how do we actually get to the post-Garcia future? It, it seems to me that there's a few prerequisites. One, you have to be able to build molecules or build any arrangement of atoms, any within thermodynamic and physical constraints, quickly and efficiently. Because if, if you were a material scientist and I told you, hey, make me a hinge, but it can only be 30 atoms or something like that. If I told you to make a hinge and I didn't tell you it only had to be 30 atoms, what would you do? You'd go to the workshop, you'd try and figure this out, test different materials, test different configurations. You get something that works and they come back. We don't really have the ability to do that on the molecular scale. It's, many of these molecules are hard to make. So it's not like you can prototype quickly. So the first capability needs to be rapid molecular prototyping right? You need to be in a position where if I tell you, I need a hinge, 30 atoms go, you can start testing that and testing different designs and see what actually fits the constraints. That's part one. Part two is you need to be able to not just build any arrangement of molecules you want, but you need to be able to extract the necessary resources. So the first class of machines, the ones that can build the basic building blocks, I would call, and I'm still not finalized on these terms, I don't think they're amazing, but I would call those builders. They're machines that build building blocks. You need to be able to extract resources as well. Today, there are many resources that are very common and very inexpensive, but some of them are extremely rare and extremely difficult to come across. Fortunately, biology also has solutions to this. It's not like the oak tree that's just outside my apartment building relies on an iron supplier in China when it needs iron. It has figured out machines that can extract iron from the environment when that's needed or molybdenum or other exotic materials. So those extractors, I call them, are based off biological machinery and they should be programmable and they should be engineerable. You won't need to do that with everything, right? Certainly some things are easier to find than others, but the basic technology is there. That's the second thing that you would build. The first is builders to build any molecule you want. The second is extractors to extract any effective resource you want. And again, I'm using any within physical constraints. The final one, which is probably the hardest, and that's why I say I might be dead before this is finalized, is what I call architects. When we think about building very complex machines on the nanoscale and using those to build much more complex products that we can use every day, we not only need to be able to make or break chemical bonds and rearrange atoms however we want, we need to be able to do that at the nanoscale, stretching out to the macro scale, right? So three-dimensional XYZ positioning of these molecules at a scale where a human could interact with that product. I don't exactly today know how we're going to do that. I have hypotheses. But I know that's at least 10 years out before we're ready to do that because we need the builders and the extractors and then we can start worrying about the architects. And I suspect that the way we get there is what I hinted at before, which is 
Aether engineers enzymes today, right? Enzymes are just nanomachines or proteins that rearrange atoms. They make chemical reactions happen and they build molecules. An enzyme isn't going to build a car for you. That's just not going to happen. I don't see how that's going to happen. But if we can get these builders or these enzymes to be good enough, maybe we can start building more complex machines from them. And then those more complex machines can be used to make more complex machines. And then eventually we may have a path to actually building machines that can construct a large steel frame from floating building blocks made of steel. It's possible that there's nothing in the law of physics that says that's impossible. And in fact, biology does it. So we know there's at least one frame of reference where we can say it's done before. We just need to figure out how to make it work for humans. And I think the final thing that's important to realize here is at the end of the day, not everything will make sense to be built with this technology. It's we are not saying that this is the 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 cure all for every single product in existence. But if we can start this and we don't even know today the full extent of what is well applied for this versus not, right? We have some things, but we don't know the full extent of what this could even do. In the same way that when someone built the first transistor, I'm sure they weren't thinking, yes, yeah, someone's going to play the jewel on their iPhone six years from now. But in the same way that Moore's law is self-reinforcing because you can take better chips, use them to build computers to help you design better circuits, to help you design better computers, that, et cetera, and you have this kind of actual exponential self-reinforcing cycle, if we can have machines that build better nanoscale machines, you start the same process. And that's the really exciting thing about this is I don't know where this is going to end up in terms of capabilities, but I know because that self-reinforcing cycle is there, that it's going to be absolutely phenomenal and incredible compared to anything I could imagine today. Interesting. Very interesting. And just to just summarize some of that, just so I can make sure that I understand it. Step one is to be able to have a, some sort of, I don't know what we call a builder, I think, but to be able to, at the nanoscale, produce molecules, materials, and then the in step two, the extractor is what actually gets that from the builder, if I understand that correctly. Good question. So an extractor in my mind is something that takes a raw material and produces a usable building block. So this is uh, in, in the metaphor that I was using earlier. If you had a pound of dirt and you wanted to extract all the iron atoms from it, or at least the majority of them, you would use an extractor to do that. Okay, so they, so they're two different things. They don't relate to each other. The builder and the extractor, so, extractor right. is made of the builders. So the extractor can be made of builders, but the idea is the extractor is providing the raw materials for builders build ah, okay. molecules. So the way you think about it is, at the end of the day, a builder is going to be tasked with building blocks for the architect, right? Because the, 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 the architect is like a catch-all for the really big complex one, big still being nanoscale. And the builder is going to need raw materials. And so in some cases, that's very simple chemicals. In some cases, that might be individual atoms. It just depends on what you're asking, what you're trying to do. In order to get those raw materials, you will, in some cases, need a machine dedicated to extracting that raw material from a very cheap source. Because it goes back to that question of, how much do I have to pay for a a mountain of dirt? How much iron is in there? And how can I get the cost of that iron when represented in the final product to be as close as possible to the raw cost of that dirt? We won't get fully there. Obviously, there's processing that has to be done. But we're definitely nowhere close. Iron is definitely a lot more expensive than what it would be if you could just extract it. Or like gold, for example, if you could extract gold or uranium from seawater. We know it's there. It's not high concentration, but it's there. These are examples of situations where you could have significant impacts to the underlying cost of the raw material which not only makes the economics more appealing, but more importantly, 
it opens up the possibility to design things that you couldn't before. The best example I know of this is aluminum, right? Aluminum used to be very rare. I mean, it's partially because it oxidized very quickly, but, and it used to be that like kings would have aluminum silverware. And that was like, it's about platinum above anything else. And then the moment we figured out how to make aluminum cheap, avionics took off. The applicability of aluminum in modern material science is just so varied and so incredible. And it was because it went from being like platinum level expensive to like steel level expensive and the capabilities exploded. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting to think about what the, like you said, we can't apply to uh, to every material. So I wonder what the uh, what the next aluminum will be that we can build now. Can, uh, right. It is expensive now, very cheap in the future, but there obviously will still be some things. Right. Who knows? Maybe gold that remains at that extremely high price point. Right. And then just to, fin- to round out to, like this, the brief summary. So for the architects, you're thinking of them as essentially like a composite pattern where they can build themselves, build yeah. better versions of themselves, and that can theoretically scale up to whatever you want, basically. Right. right, exactly. And I think the the key here is some people argue that what I call architects are basically microbes or use bacteria. Because uh, technically, bacteria are self-assembling machines. I have a different take on this. I believe that there are aspects of nature and biology that are useful to learn from, and there are aspects that are not useful, right? So nature wants to replicate itself and wants to survive once in the very broadest sense of the word. And what that means is that these machines often behave in ways that make sense for that final objective, but may not make sense for human beings who just want to make a car frame. And, and there's numerous examples of this. And so I believe that the, the future of this process is a hybrid approach where we figure out what biology is quite good at and what these biological machines are quite good at. We really leverage that. We use those machines to build non-biological machines that maybe have are inspired by them. And then we use those to build even more complex machines. And we don't use biology unless we feel there's something very specific that is required that biology is very good at. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like how you see, I don't know, turbines in some of these biological structures at that small scale. Obviously, we didn't copy the turbine from biology, but you can imagine. Exactly. Exactly. If you want to make a turbine uh, at the nanoscale, there's a reasonable argument to say, why don't you use the biological turbine? And just staple that to something else. Again, more complicated than that. But it's a good example of a machine where it's like, yeah, why, as long as it fits the specifications, why would you invent a new turbine? Mm-hmm. And we've seen even more recently with the dog robots that Boston Dynamics yeah. is coming out with. They're modeling yeah. a lot of their a lot of their joints and a lot of the the spring mechanisms out of biology. So right. very cool. Exactly. Exactly. And with Boston Dynamics, that's a perfect example because nature figures out shortcuts. It is an optimization algorithm that is trying to figure out how can I generate as much entropy as possible as quickly as possible to massively oversimplify what life and nature is, but that's what it is. And so the more we can learn what those shortcuts are, the more we can gain insight, especially at the nanoscale where we're not used to engineering, right? Humans or beings are not used to doing that kind of work I and mean, don't have an intuition for it. The better job we can do building those machines in the first place. We've talked about this at a very high level, the clouds, what it looks like 50 years in the future. So now to bring it into what your company has done so far, you in uh, the interview that I saw with Zach Slaybeck, our mutual friend in Founders First, I'll link that interview below. You said that you have so far generated 50% plus of the world's enzymatic data. And by mid this year, you'll have presumably over 80 to 90%. So first of all, that's astounding in and of itself. 
So how did you get to that as the solution, as the first step to this high level idea? Absolutely. And this is where we haven't really talked much about machine learning yet, but we're about to. So part of the challenge with engineering biology, there's really two challenges. One is correctly defining the problem and the solution space. So making sure that one, you're actually certain the biology is the answer. And two, that you're using the right type of biology that you can actually standardize because there's a lot of biological systems out there that are immensely complicated and we still have no clue how they work to a large extent. That's part one. Part two is if you're trying to engineer a biological system because it operates at a different time and length scale than you're used to, where many of your assumptions go out the window, and because there's a high probability that it is more complex than you think, right? We don't have... When you look at a piston in a car engine, you feel fairly certain that the rear seat that does not really interact with the piston, right? You feel fairly certain that I don't need to worry about the rear seat in the car when designing the piston. That's not really true in biology. This is very complex. We don't have full insight uh, and a v- visibility into everything that's actually happening. So because of that, the second thing you have to realize is human beings are usually not very well suited to the design aspect of this problem. It's not like we can roll out a blueprint. And I used to believe this when I was much younger. You just roll out a blueprint, you roll up your sleeves, you get some work done, and there goes your prototype. It's not the case. So the insight that we had was, it seems like we're dealing with a phenomenon where it's complex, but it follows rules. And if we can generate enough data maybe we can build models that can understand the rules well enough that we can get practical results. And we don't actually care what's really happening, right? In the same way that if I'm designing a plane and I'm trying to really optimize the wing geometry to minimize turbulence and drag on the wingtips, I don't really care what the turbulence precisely looks like. I just care that I know how much it affects drag within certain percent confidence that I know that when it actually flies, it's not going to rip itself off or something like that. It's going to be plus minus 5% of what I predicted. Planes have much tighter tolerances than that, but that would be horrifying. So the first step to this process of generating this amount of data was actually the first step was saying, what kind of models do we need? Because I think a mistake that's often made in machine learning and a mistake that I've been guilty of before is to go for the fancy models immediately. This is the, ooh, neural networks. Let's throw a neural network at the problem and see what happens. And of course, neural networks have their own problems, so it's, it, it can totally bite you in the ass. And it does frequently. I speak from personal experience. The first question is, what kind of models do you need? And so when you're talking about, if we make it very specific to Aether's use case, if you're talking about taking an enzyme that makes a certain molecule and optimizing it, changing its design in such a way where you increase the yield or something like that, you frequently can actually get away with very simple models. And that's actually surprising that's true. You can use polynomial regression. You can use pretty simple classification algorithms like uh, K-nearest neighbor, and you can actually get results that are good. A human being can even do it. And actually uh, a random walk up the fitness landscape can do it as well, just take longer. So optimizing proteins tends to be something that's very solvable with simple algorithms. Probably a more complex algorithm, more data will do better, but if you don't need it, don't do it. However, the problem is, what if there's no enzyme out there that does what you want, right? And let's, that, that's usually the case, right? If you are a process chemist who, because suddenly there's a pandemic, needs to rapidly scale up the production of an antiviral, and there's one step in the process, it's a huge pain in the ass to make this one intermediate uh, to make this drug, 
what the hell are the chances that something in nature already produces that? Basically zero. There's been companies that have tried to search everything. And of course, they didn't find anything. You can't brute force this problem. And so that's really the problem. It's like, how do you, if a customer comes to you and says, I really need you to make this molecule. It's just, it's a huge pain in the ass. It keeps me up at night. It's why we can't scale this up quickly enough or make it cheaply enough. Can you make it for me? You need to now build a system that can take an enzyme that does not produce this molecule at all. So there's zero activity on it and have a little bit of activity to begin with. Once you have that little bit of activity, okay, you're off to the races. You don't even need a neural network anymore. And so in terms of assessing what kind of models would be needed, in Aether's case, we knew that optimizing the protein, we could do simpler stuff. But we knew that actually what we call non-natural activity or novel activity, engineering an enzyme to have novel activity, it's immensely difficult. And it's very difficult to see how simpler algorithms would actually work. Because what you're talking about is you're combining two very different spaces. You're combining the space of all possible enzyme designs, which is just huge and very complex. And you're combining the space of all possible chemicals that could be produced. These two spaces share very little in common with each other. Technically, an enzyme is a molecule. It's just a much bigger molecule, but that's pretty much it. And so we did some testing early on, and we pretty quickly prototyped and discovered that actually, yes, with enough data, neural networks could solve this problem. But off the bat, we said polynomial regression isn't going to cut this. KNN is not going to cut work. So we're going to have to approach this from a more complex perspective using neural networks in the first place. So just to get like some more perspective on... yeah what exactly this looks like. What does the data look like? What does, I'm just trying to think if you have a molecule, how do you, like, yeah. in practice, how does that, you said yeah. you're using very simple models. Like, what are the degrees of freedom of this data? Et yeah. yeah, yeah. It depends on how you model it. You can approach it so many different ways. The data sets we generate are, you can think of them at their simplest extent as a two-dimensional tensor, where on one axis, you've got the sequence of the enzyme, right? The sequence is the design of the enzyme. And so there's many different enzyme designs that you're testing. And then on the other axis, you have a chemical reaction that did or did not occur. And you often have dozens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, just depends on the data set you generated. And what you're doing is you are mapping, when I created, when I introduced this change to the enzyme design, what chemicals did I still produce? What chemicals did I no longer produce? And what new chemicals did I produce that I didn't produce before? And then what you can do is you can train models to relate those two. You can train it off of, and we often do multimodal neural networks where there's two different types of data being fed into one dense layer, many dense layers, but one system where we have convolutional nets that are training off of sequence data. And we have graph convolutional nets that are training off of molecular data. And they're learning what about this molecule is important and what about the sequence is important or enzyme design is important. And then they're feeding that into dense layers that synthesize both sets of information to understand what's important in each one and how do I get to this final outcome. So you end up in a situation where you're trying to relate these two different spaces. In order to do that, you need vast amounts of data, many hundreds of thousands or millions of data points. And what's important to realize is if you try to do, first off, if you try to do this manually, good luck, right? You're <laughs> 10,000 people working 10,000 years isn't going to work. And also the quality of data is just going to be garbage which is really important, especially in biology, to have good quality controls, good quality metrics to know that your data isn't bad as much as you can. Existing technologies like commercially available automation also aren't going to cut it, right? Because when you look at the state of biological automation today, you're looking at machines that are designed for very limited use cases. And unfortunately, biology still as, as a discipline 
is very much dominated by the old guard of single hypothesis experiments, very slow iteration paces, and very low integration into computer science. So a lot of the equipment that's used to support those scientists and those projects reflect that philosophy of, if I were to ask a question, why run 10,000 experiments when you can run 10 million? The philosophy is, let's run 10 experiments and then we'll see where we are, which leads to this kind of problem. And so what we've done at Aether is build custom hardware to rethink how we actually do automation in this space, how we actually run these experiments, so we can actually run millions of experiments. And we can actually generate data sets large at costs that are low, right? Because if your experiment costs 10 bucks each and you want to run a million experiments, that's not going to work. <laughs> You're going to run out of money before the month is up. But taking this from a first principles perspective and saying, how can I rethink automation? How can I apply learnings from automation, semiconductor industry and other places to biology so that I can really create scalable systems to generate this data in the first place? That's what's key to Aether, right? It's not like our machine learning team is great and we do really good work on building new types of neural networks and even simpler models when we need them and infrastructure to support everything. But it's not like we invented a new type of neuron or a new way of weighting connections. It's th That's not what we've done. We've built very clever neural networks that only exist because we've done very clever work on the hardware side to actually generate the data in the first place. And that data is data we own. And again, just to so summarize, so that again, to make sure I sure. understand it, because uh, a lot of this stuff is very complicated. Your, like, your input to these, to your models that you have is the different molecules and the, essentially the environment of the experiment. Right. And the output is the representation of the chemicals that were produced from that. Exactly. And just to give a sense of the, of the scale of this data, how many experiments have you run? And I guess, like, how big is the data from each experiment? Yeah. In terms of bits, each experiment isn't particularly large. When you actually look at the, because right, each data point is a sequence or each experiment is a sequence or an enzyme design and a reaction that did or didn't occur. So it's, it's binary. And then of course, there's a massive metadata trail behind it of all the conditions and all that and the QC checks. So that's actually quite low in terms of data size. An enzyme is a sequence of several hundred amino acids. We use embeddings, we use transformers. So I think my machine learning lead might kill me. I think we use an embedding of 10, vector of 1024 right now. So not that big. And then the chemical side is the representation of a chemical is maybe a kilobit or something like that. The raw data that got processed to that point is quite a bit larger. That's in the tens of megabytes per experiment. So you can imagine that quite a bit of what we do is not just the hardware of running the experiments, but actually the software, the infrastructure, the data, the, the data infrastructure to be able to pipe that much data that quickly. And even the problem of getting Comcast to route another fiber optic cable to our building because we keep crapping out the Wi-Fi because we're, the ingestion engine is killing it. So that's the data size. Now, what's important to realize about this data is biology is inherently noisy. And the reason why it's noisy is two things. Your interrogation method, so the way you actually generate the data, of course, has noise. But also it's noisy because you can never, it was like that metaphor earlier with the, the piston and the rear seat in the car. You can never fully interrogate what's happening, right? You can't have a tiny little microscope that's seeing exactly what happened at every single second. And so what that means is you're potentially missing something and that's going to lead to noise, what, what you would call, or, or at least residuals in your predictions. Excuse me. So the other aspect of this, the other aspect of this that's very important is making sure that whatever biases that have been introduced into your data set 
one that all the obvious ones, the known unknowns are controlled for. So you have to have a ton of controls, but then also that your predictions are tested as quickly as possible so that you can start to generate new data sets to improve the model to avoid any biases that you might be generating, at least the majority of them. And so the way you can think about it is it's almost like a GAN. We, we don't use GANs yet. At some point, they're very cool, just a huge pain in the ass to engineer and not the thing to solve yet. But the way you can think about it is our main neural network is a discriminator. Its job is to behave as a surrogate of the underlying ground truth that is very complicated and we may not understand. Once iterating through that space, you can use simpler algorithms, you can use greedy search, there's a bunch of things. You don't need a neural network for that. Eventually we might use a GAN. But, but as long as we can be certain that whatever set of predictions we're generating, one, that we can test enough predictions to meaningfully change the data set size so we can change our surrogate model's understanding um, of the underlying landscape, and that those results can come quickly enough that it's not like six months before we find out, oh, we were totally wrong. So there's quite a bit of interaction and work around making sure that not just the machine learning infrastructure is well-built to do this, but that the data pipelining infrastructure, that the robotics infrastructure is ready so that, hey, machine learning has got 10,000 things to be tested, test them. Can we get those results back in seven days, eight days, nine days? How long is that going to take? Yeah, that's just like the multidisciplinary aspect of it is so intriguing. And and you already touched on a little bit of my next question, which was, how do you decide how what experiment to run next? And it sounds like you were already you're going down the path of active learning where you're taking what exactly. data that you have gotten already, maybe seeing where you think that it was, I don't know, obviously, I don't know exactly how you're doing right. it, but right. you have you have some sort of mechanism by which you take in the time series of what your most recent experiments were and depending on probably the client or other, whatever you're optimizing for, what experiment should we run next? A lot of what we do when we pick the next round of designs that want to be tested is we are our objective function especially in the beginning is find an enzyme that does a little bit of what the customer wants um, because then we know we're in the right part of the search space and we can optimize from there so you're looking for something with at least some activity to start off but because there are many ways for biology to not do what you want to do and there's many biases that you're going to have in your predictions what you end up doing and what we end up optimizing for is it's 80-20. 80% of our selections are optimized for that objective function. And we enforce certain diversity requirements there. Like you don't want to have, if you're going to run 10,000 uh, designs through your process, you don't want 9,870 of them to be almost identical to each other because you want to maximize the amount of learning that you're going to get um, from testing all these different hypotheses. And then the other 20% is just randomly distributed. And often we select sequences that are in or design enzyme designs that are in areas that are underrepresented in our data set that we haven't seen a lot of information for, even if most of them are just dead, which by the way, most of the ways of modifying an enzyme will kill an enzyme because most of it's just garbage, but that's useful, right? Because it, it, more and more we're realizing that a great deal of what our neural networks are doing is not learning how well an enzyme works, but learning how, what are all the dumb ways to kill an enzyme? And then learning what is that manifold in that massively hyperdimensional space where there is something that's going to be functional and then iterating through that manifold. That's really fascinating. It makes sense that most of the things that you would, most of the tweaks that you would make to, to an enzyme would kill it. Obviously, you would have many more interactions in daily life of things going massively wrong. So I, it's good that that is the case. Uh, what You said that 
there's a lot of pre like the representation that it gets to feed into the network is very small. And the way it gets to that is taking this huge amount of experiment data. And I want to dig into what the what that the experiment process even really looks like and making that a little bit more tangible. So how do you, what, do you just send it a what's the the input to your hardware of what of what experiment to run? Exactly. At the end of the day, what you're doing is you want to have a situation where you have a tiny bit of enzyme, and this is all in, in liquid, usually water, but it could be other solvents. You take your enzyme, you mix it with a chemical in advance. So you know which enzyme you put in, which chemical you put in. You mix them together, you leave it alone for a few hours, and then you find out what happened. You, you interrogate, did that enzyme change the molecule or not, um, at least to the threshold of detection. And what that looks like physically is, initially, it looks very traditional. So it's all automated, but when you're actually modifying the DNA, we're using custom protocols, but they're still pretty standard protocols. There's something called PCR, which is used to modify or amplify or uh, uh, duplicate DNA. We're not going to reinvent PCR. It's, it's a great process. It does what it needs to do. It's fine. It would be insane to try to reinvent that. That's not where the innovation is. The innovation really comes in when you're saying, how can I take a sample of enzyme, which there might be only a few microliters of in a very high density plastic plate. How can I take that and not only mix it with many other compounds separately? Because right, if you mix one enzyme with more than one compound in the same and test it at the same time, so you multiplex physically, you can tell if one of those molecules changed, well, it had to be that enzyme because you, you can actually make that correlation. But if you multiplex many enzymes in one compound and there's something that changes, how the hell do you know? which one changed it. So there's physical restrictions there. But finally, it's how you mix them. So we use a lot of stamping techniques to do that. Rather than a human moving samples, we use different types of pin tools. You can imagine it as a stamp of needles that actually lower down into one uh, master plate, lift up a little bit of liquid, and then stamp it out onto a reaction plate where these reactions are being set up at very small volume. And then finally, if we've run the reaction, how do we find out what happened? Many people in, and this is our secret sauce, to a large extent, many people will use something called mass spectrometry. It doesn't really matter what it is, but it, it's a technique that says, hey, what molecules are in your sample? And most mass spectrometry techniques are very slow. They break down all the time. They're extremely mechanical. And most importantly, they require large volumes. They require tens or hundreds of microliters, which isn't large to a human, but is large if you want to run billions of samples or millions of samples. And so what we figured out is, how to use uh, a completely different technique where rather than injecting samples directly into a mass spec, we actually line them up on these custom chips and we use lasers to ionize the samples. And so then what happens is basically, hey, I've got 10,000 samples, arbitrary number of samples on a chip. I want to find out what happened. Hit it with the laser. It flashes everything and ionizes it. Gets sucked into a mass spec and then we find out what happened. Obviously quite a bit more work than that and more detail. But uh, to summarize, you start with relatively traditional processes to produce the DNA that codes for the enzymes you want to test. Converting the DNA into enzymes is also relatively traditional. No reason to reinvent that wheel. The real innovation comes in, how do we multiplex and actually take these enzymes and in a scalable, efficient way, mix them with many different compounds? And then how do we build chips that will, when hit with a laser, ionize our samples and actually make it possible for us to see on a mass spec what happened in the first place? And then you get your readout. You get I know this is a sequence of the design of the enzyme that I put in. I know this was the chemical I put in. And I know that when I actually hit it with the laser, this is what I saw come out of it. Yeah. And like you said, you're, it's hyper-parallelized. You're running like 
don't know, what, probably a thousand plus experiments at a time, if that's even the right order of magnitude. The laser is still hitting one sample at a time, but the experiments are being set up many thousands of a time at a time in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so this all this entire process of assuming there's some sort of thing which converts it where you get the DNA from the type of molecule you want to produce, that's probably some sort of computer program that is already existing. And then from there, it's completely automated until that data collection process. Exactly. So there are some steps where a human intervenes just because this isn't a machine learning thing, but this is a very apt kind of automation piece of advice, which is uh, not everything needs to be automated. I think maybe the best example in the universe is when Elon Musk tried to automate everything in the production of the Model 3 and spent like something like $2.4 billion a quarter or a month. Yeah. I, I did the math once and it shocked me how much money they spent. And the reason why not everything needs to be automated is one, there are some things that a human is just better at doing because there might need to be some kind of fuzzy logic involved or some kind of complex physical processing, like in the case of a car, routing cables through the frame. That's a pain in the ass to build a robot to do. I, that's like some weird multi-jointed robot that a human arm can just do quickly. So that's one aspect where you shouldn't automate it. And then the other part is sometimes you just don't need to automate it because you don't need the human to do it that often. So for example, our process has different automated work cells, and then they're not connected with an assembly line. Because if you actually do the processing math, if you had an automated assembly line connect all of them, at least in the current factory, you'd maybe bump your throughputs by 10 to 15%. But building an assembly line and building the scheduler behind that is like two quarters worth of work. It's a team of engineers, be expensive. And so what we realize is, well, actually, what if we set up our system so that it's batched? So each system kind of batches a bunch of samples until they're ready for a human a couple times a day to come up, grab the batch, move it to the next one, and move forward. As much as I think machine learning engineers are often guilty of trying to use more complex models than they need to, I think the same is true in automation. I also often have the, and, and used to have much more frequently, the tendency to say, let's just automate everything. Like, wh- I, I don't want to even see the robots until they generate the data. But it turns out it's more complicated than that. And you should always be asking yourself, is there a simpler way to achieve this? And is there is that simpler way something that I can test quickly? And if you can, it's probably the right way to do it. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, one of the biggest learnings of working in industry in general for me has been the importance of iteration speed of start extremely simple, way simpler than you think. And then from there, figure out how to connect everything so that you can have fast experiments. And then from there, you can go all the way up to transformers if you want to. Exactly. And I think it it often insults the aesthetic sensibility of people who like very grand, well-designed systems. I know I have that bias. I really like a, an elegantly designed system. But look, if it's quick and dirty, but it gets you a test that helps you answer a question that you don't have an answer to yet, it's probably the thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then even broader than that, looking at the whole system in general, if you just think about if you have a bottleneck somewhere there, which of course the system it has to, tweaking other parts of the system that aren't the bottleneck is just not going to have any sort of effect. And then a follow-on question from that, what in the cycle of running the experiment through the lab, getting all that data, processing it, feeding it into your discriminative model, and then from there you have your system to figure out what other experiments you want to run. I'm assuming that's that is some sort of cycle where Where in that cycle is your bottleneck currently? Yeah, so that's a good question. The bottleneck isn't really on the software side, right? Uh, A neural network can run inference much faster than an experiment can be physically run. We we always have way more candidates to test than we can physically test, and that and then then the challenge part of the challenge is and part of the exciting thing is like how do you most intelligently select the candidates both to get to the answer but also to 
maximizes the chance that your model improves its learning and then moves forward and gets better. The bottleneck right now really comes down to the way we actually prep the initial samples and the initial enzymes. As part of our focus of building an MVP system and, and just something that works quickly, we will sometimes decide, hey, yes, we can think of a more elegant solution for this, but it's not the thing to work on right now. And today, one of those inelegant solutions that we run with is how we actually express our enzymes. So just a quick kind of biology primer. The way you produce a protein is you need DNA to code for it. And there is a process which will take DNA, convert to RNA. The RNA will convert to protein. And that process, every living cell, every bacterium, every cell in your body does it trillions of times a second. It's very well established in the realm of biology. It's called the central dogma for a reason. It's the core of everything. We today produce our proteins in cells, in bacteria. And we do this because it, one, it, there's well-established protocols for it. And two, at the end of the day, when we design this enzyme for our customer, they're going to produce it in a bacteria as well. So we, we want to be sure that we're not designing something that works really well outside of the scope of how they're actually going to produce it, because you don't want to design the perfect enzyme and the customer goes and tries to make it at scale. And then they're like, we can't do this. That's useless. However, the problem with choosing to use a actual full cell a bacterium to produce this enzyme or this protein is a bacterium, even the simplest bacterium, is a bag, this mushy bag of 100,000 moving parts or 100,000 different types of moving parts, many millions of those moving parts, maybe 6% of which you have some idea of what they're doing and 1% are producing the thing that you want. So it's a very inefficient manufacturing process and it's a very unpredictable manufacturing process. So when we produce an enzyme, one of the most annoying things is that we often have to wait something like 72 hours before we can actually have enough enzyme to produce it. And there's, it's not like we're just waiting, we're, we're processing and doing things in the meantime. But th that not only adds a lot of time to our turnaround time, but also more importantly, it's not very scalable. Because if you use a bacterium to produce something, you need to keep that bacterium alive, you need to give it food, you need to, and, and most of that food is not going to what you want. It's just keeping the bacterium alive, which is annoying. You just want it to if you could just only work on producing that, that protein. And then you also need to oxygenate it. That's the other annoying thing is like you can't getting to really high density expression levels, like really like thousands of different enzymes being expressed on a single plate is difficult because the low, the higher the density you get in your wells and the smaller your wells get, the surface area that's exposed to oxygen decreases much more quickly than the volume. So your bacteria aren't going to grow as quickly. And we've, there's been solutions we've had to build for that. So the long-term solution, which we'll deploy probably end of this year, is to switch to cell-free manufacturing, at least for the testing phase. And what this is, take the machines in the bacterium that produce, that, that take DNA, convert to RNA, and convert to protein, because there's machines, and we know what those are. Take those machines out from the cell, remove the rest of the nonsense, and just use those machines. So all you have to do is drop in some DNA, and then it produces your protein. That requires development time, and it wasn't necessary for our initial you know, Gen 1 system. But damn, is it going to make things better for the Gen 2? That sounds, first of all, extremely cool from the systems level perspective, elegance and all right. that, of not having to oxygenate your bacteria, restrictions on surface area, and all that you talked about. But also from the increase in scale that that will be able to produce, it sounds like, yeah, 72 hours to be able to... Yeah, it's a very long time. And it will reduce itself free. You could theoretically talk about minutes, depending on the volume, depending on the productivity. The, the other thing that's always very 
I have a personal philosophy that the more you can get rid of the living biology, the better, because the living aspect tends to be the hardest to predict. And in our case, tends to be the part that isn't actually contributing to our end goal. So if you're, just to give a pretty stark example of this, in our case, we are producing enzymes, which are machines. Enzymes are not themselves alive. They cannot replicate themselves. They don't have any intention. It's just a machine, a very sophisticated one, but a machine. And in our case, we would like to strip out as much of the living part of the biology as possible because it's just annoying. It gets in the way and it produces noise. It doesn't really contribute to our end benefit. We just want to use machines to build machines. But if you're a company like this one company, Pivot Bio, P-I-V-O-T Bio, they've got this technology where they've engineered bacteria to fix nitrogen and they coat uh, seeds, like agricultural seeds with it. So you don't have to use nitrogen fertilizer. In that case, one of the aspects of living things, which is that ability to self-replicate, is actually important for the final goal. And so Pivot Bio is a good example of something where you're like, actually, wait a second, we should use living systems because self-replication is basically impossible unless you're using a living system and is a critical part of our product, therefore use living systems. So it's, it's that kind of figuring out what you actually need from the system will help guide what technologies you should actually use. Yeah, super interesting. And like you said, the... It goes back to what you're talking about of biology being a very noisy system in general, and that living part of it, maybe 90% of it can be stripped off away from this from that bacteria, and you'll presumably reduce a lot of your residuals in, in that data at the end. I'm also very curious as to, to switch gears a little bit, the being that it is a machine learning podcast, how much, so there's a few different ways I could go with this, but to start off with where... Did you start the machine learning process when the when you were first getting started, beginning of the Gen 1 system or even pre that? And how did that kind of evolve into what it is now? Yeah, yeah. So early on, before we had the robots, we had to figure out, okay, can, how do we possibly build learning algorithms, whether it's a neural network or something simpler, without data? that we're generating. So early on, a lot of our work was actually taking public data sets and then mining them for information, doing cross-validation to make sure that the data was high quality. It was a crazy intensive process because it's not like you can, unlike like image classification, it's not like you can go online and say, hey, what's a test set of 50,000 enzymes against 10,000 compounds? It's just not a thing that exists until now, until we've generated it. Early on, a lot of it wasn't actually thinking about the algorithms. It was just how do we generate enough data and how do we actually strip mine enough data from the internet? So what we ended up doing was we took a lot of public data sets. We would optimize for the data sets where the data had at least one or actually at least two annotations in literature because something that's unfortunately very true about online biological data sets is one, no one publishes their negative results because you're not incentivized to do that. And two, which is a huge problem if you're generating data sets. And then two, they tend to be wrong a lot. There are these public data sets that are just heavily misannotated. And the reason why that's okay for most use cases is most people aren't going on there and trying to mine everything. They're trying to find one thing and they're trying to find that paper where that thing came from. If they can't find the paper, they go somewhere else. So it's why it's like that. So a lot of it was building infrastructure on like mining that data. And then, then the question became, what kind of algorithms do we start with? And I think actually, initially, we made the mistake of starting with neural networks when we shouldn't have, right? I got very excited early on about the idea of using neural networks for this. I was reading a lot. This was back when uh, ImageNet was coming out. And we, it, it was, I, there was a lot of excitement about it. I was like, let's just throw neural networks at it. And I actually want to give a shout out to DeepChem. This is an excellent, if you want to do machine learning 
with the kind of biological or chemical data sets. DeepChem is an open source repository of Python packages where you can, they have certain kinds of neural networks that are well suited to graphical information like the molecules. And they have all these example data sets. So it's a DeepChem is excellent. Highly recommend people check it out. And we started off with DeepChem and we started iterating off of that. Now, fortunately, it actually worked with the neural networks. So that was lucky. Like we probably should have started with much simpler, like random forest classifiers or something like that. But what we did is we just said, look, let's just take public data sets and just natural chemistries. Let's spend three months manually curating all that data. And then let's just start iterating and seeing how good we can get our AUC. That was it. And then we were able to actually find all shit. These neural networks can predict at least natural enzymatic activity fairly well. One problem we had to solve was how do you generate negative results, right? Because no one, no one's publishing a paper that says we tested a thousand mutants and it didn't do anything. So like these public data sets are all just positive results. They're not negatives. So what we ended up doing there was we did find some negatives, but we would like randomize the labels to create negatives because we said like the chances that one, we made sure we never put the right label back, but the chances are that that enzyme does this other chemistry is basically zero. But then also we'd scramble the sequence of the enzyme because that's also probably a negative. So we cheated a little bit in the sense that we just needed to produce something that we knew for certain was a negative. But it worked. And actually, we did find we could get interesting results that were consistent with the literature. We could predict whether something was this class of enzyme or that class of enzyme with very high precision. And then I think the, the challenge became, okay, how do we build an infrastructure to support this? Because I think Andre Karpathia, who runs machine learning at Tesla, has a really good talk on this, which is if you were to boil down what using deep learning in industry is, like a tiny bit of it is designing and testing neural networks. Most of it is checking the data, cleaning the data, building infrastructure for the data, infrastructure for the neural networks. And you want to be in a position, I think this is Andrew Ng's uh, idea, which is like deep learning is in some ways more similar to science than engineering because you're testing hypotheses. And so you want to build an infrastructure where you can have what he calls one day iterations. You think about a bunch of, you, you wrangle a bunch of data throughout the day. You set a series of hypotheses you want to test. Right before you leave work, you uh, spin up a bunch of networks. You come back in the morning, you test your results. You check your results and see how well they fit with your hypotheses or whether they validated or invalidated them. Very similar, by the way, to like biology and testing biology. It's a very similar concept. And so now a lot of our emphasis is we certainly do engineer neural networks and other algorithms. But a lot of it is like, how do we build infrastructure so that if one of our engineers says, I think that maybe we want to use a different type of embedding, and I think that our current embedding is, is missing something, that they can actually test that hypothesis quickly. Now, we're not at one-day iterations for everything. We're still building everything. It's still a little, a little MVP-esque, uh, maybe a little sub-MVP in some areas, but it's definitely gotten a lot better, and I think that's the way you really accelerate progress is in the same way that... Iterating faster on hardware is better. Iterating faster on software is better. And for machine learning, that requires that infrastructure. Yeah, it's quite surprising in a lot of ways. It sounds like you're building a lot of this yourself. It's quite surprising that it is necessary given that how, I guess machine learning not, learning is not that old of a field, but it is surprising that a lot of the commercial software, even open source software is really missing like some very important gaps in, in some of these things. Yeah, and I think I, I have friends who have tried to spin up companies for this. Like one of them, the company has since pivoted, I believe, but they were trying to do data versioning and infrastructure for like labeling data easily and keeping track of how you relabel data sets. I think part of it might have to do with the fact that if you're a company that's big enough 
that you need really aggressive infrastructure for managing labeling your data. It may be so custom that you need to build it yourself, so niche, and, and some certain things about that won't work with a, a one-size-fits-all. Um, and then most people are getting away without that infrastructure. And that's, it's, that's the problem we had with our database systems in, in, at Aether, right? In biology and, and biological automation, the, the database systems that track the robots and track all the experiments, the metadata, uh, the metadata sorry, is called uh, LIMS, Laboratory Information Management System. We've got a kick-ass LIMS team. And we had to build our own LIMS from the ground up. Because it was like, yeah, there are commercially available software out there, but they're all just not right. And the time it would take to get like three different softwares to work with each other and make it just right for us is the same time and resources to just build our own damn system in the first place. But especially with the recent work in terms of people are talking a lot about GPT-3 and we, Twitter keeps blowing up with, oh my God, I made it do this or I made it do that. And all these very specific applications where it's like, yes, if I ever need to um, create a bunch of images of a, a pizza chair. I know where to go. But something that I think is interesting now is a lot of the problem with the infrastructure and the uh, data labeling is often something that is hard to reduce to a very mathematical or quantitative framework. It's often something where it's, I need just this one little thing to change and I can only really describe in words. And for that reason, a human is often tasked with engineering that system. I'm really curious as these models get better and better at taking human inputs and turning them into software, into code, into actual frameworks that can be used. Is that actually the way to build a company and to build a system where you can actually download some software and it can take a look at your data and it can actually start organizing it? in ways that are useful. Now, I, I think we will always need some human intervening with it, but I agree that there is a huge opportunity here. And it seems like it's almost like there needs to be machine learning for building infrastructure to make it work for your application for your machine learning. Yeah, software at the beta level is something that I've touched on a little bit in a previous episode, but where you can think of all software as in the future, there's no reason why any software should have to be coded by a human, except for the machine learning part of the software of which the rest of it is built from. It's like right now we are exactly, if we go back to your three-step process of like where we get to, same kind of thing here. You like, we want to be building the architects. We want to be building the models and the infrastructure. We don't want to be building the actual molecules, so to speak, of the software itself. Like we're literally just not as good as coding as gradient descent. Right, exactly, exactly. It's a human being's greatest resource is this massive neural network in our head that can do pattern matching that's very difficult to quantify. And the more we can liberate us to do that and everything else gets solved automatically, that's, I think Carpathy calls it like a software 2.0. I completely agree. Like at some point, hello world isn't going to be a print statement as an introduction. It's going to be like you telling some version, future version of GPT-3 to build an entire simulated reality or something. And, and you're focused on the higher level stuff and the algorithms are figuring out everything else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like you said, it's our brains are specifically tuned to pattern matching, particularly on low samples and things that we haven't seen before, never encountered, but we can still find some sort of strategy to navigate those situations. Whereas in, I think, I'm not going to speak for every single person, but uh, a lot of software engineering is solving, same, taking something from another domain and bringing it into your domain and you're just like copying it and making just a few changes that, like you said, don't necessarily take advantage of the human's brain in in that full capacity. Yeah, absolutely. So do you mentioned before we started this that you are starting to 
release some of your the data that you have as for an upcoming competition. So can you talk about the, I guess, the motivation for that, what that's going to look like? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're in a pretty unique position that we've generated data sets that just don't exist anywhere else, whether that's testing data sets where many tens of thousands of enzyme mutants are being tested against thousands of compounds or the reverse. Dozens of enzymes being tested against tens of thousands of compounds. Something, especially in the second one, where you take one enzyme and you just hit it against 50,000 different molecules to see what happens. Something we've been very surprised by is not just the diversity of reactions that you see, but the weird edge case chemistries that you see where you're like, what? It did that? Really? Why? Like, how is that even remotely related to what happened before? But it does happen and we've checked. And I think that there's a great deal of opportunity here to really start thinking about algorithmic approaches that we just don't, that's not on our critical path, whether that's using GANs or anything else. And so we're very curious to release some of these data sets to the world with certain challenges where we'll hide a validation set that we know internally. And these data sets just don't exist anywhere else. And then see, okay, go for it. See what you can do in terms of predicting this objective function. Or can you identify, like even one thing that we've, we haven't discovered yet, but we have a suspicion most enzymes are considered, so like an enzyme is a machine, and there's something called the active site, which is a part of the enzyme that actually does the reaction. It rearranges the atoms. We have a, a sneaking suspicion that a lot of enzymes may have more than one active site, because which would be weird. That's Evolutionarily, that would be really interesting, because we're seeing, when we cluster the chemistries that we see, we sometimes see very distinct clusters formed that are very different from each other. And it almost looks like there's two distinct mechanisms occurring on two different parts of the enzyme. And this is the kind of stuff where just from a scientific perspective, it's really fascinating. And we're curious to see, okay, if we release a competition, and we're not sure what the kind of the goal of the competition is yet, that's part of what we're trying to figure out. We'll probably do a release sometime in March. But if we can just release this data and say, hey, take a stab at it, see what you can find. What are the interesting results you can see? Not only would we potentially be interested in hiring some of the people who do the most interesting stuff, but I think it would also challenge people to really start thinking differently about biology, to actually start thinking about what if we can generate data sets as large? What becomes possible that we never considered possible before? And I think that's something that Google has done a very good job of in pushing machine learning forward is that they are willing to release data sets at times to inspire people. And also, obviously, they're self-motivated to find better algorithms and it's a win-win for everyone involved. Yeah, we'll be releasing that sometime in March. It will likely be at least one data set where we've taken an enzyme and we've just hit it against tens of thousands of compounds. And you'll be some of the first people on the planet to see what happens when you do that. Very cool. I'm always a fan of people building in the open and uh, releasing that data sets. Google is, at the same time that they do release some of them, they've, they have been criticized a lot for keeping a lot of the, the data sets in-house. And, but of course, you are a different company than Google, and it is the data is your moat, so to speak. So beyond the competition, what is next for the company? It's uh, It's been reported in Forbes that you're expected to have $2 million in revenue and in, in contracts by the end of next year. So where does Aether go from here? Yeah, for the last year and a half, we've been an engineering org, right? So we have very much been building robots, building technology, building this very complex interdisciplinary system that can actually generate the data and then actually do something with the data. Now it's time to deploy the technology in the real world. So our focus now is on building out a commercial team, servicing contracts, um, really starting to turn the wheel repeatedly in the wild. And then sometime next year, we'll raise our Series B. Right now, raising a Series A. 
but we'll raise our Series B to actually build a much larger factory, start servicing many contracts in parallel. So this is the point where we say, hey, we've done all the work to get ready. We have an incredibly differentiated platform that is light years ahead of anyone else, of everyone else. Let's deploy it. Let's actually start building enzymes for customers and doing it over and over again. So I think this is the most exciting time because when you're working in the real world, you have constraints. People expect you to deliver something that has value. And that means you can't just do whatever the hell you want. And in some sense, that's constricting, but in some sense, it's very exhilarating because now you have a challenge. You have a North Star that's very clear and unambiguous. And it's this customer told us to do this, do it. Let's move forward. We know what we're doing. And yeah, it's incredibly exciting. Well, from the outside as well, it's, it sounds incredibly exciting. Just the paint, the picture that you've been able to paint of where you think that the world is headed, where you think that the all this sort of technology is going to lead to is is really incredible and obviously i would urge anyone you're raising a new round right now and so that probably means that you'll be hiring aggressively after that's closed so if people want to find out more about those some sort of those opportunities where can they go where can they find out more yeah we have a website www.aetherbio.com someone took aether.com right before we did. So it's a constant struggle. But we have a website. We have a couple jobs up right now, none of them in the machine learning space, but we will be releasing quite a few job descriptions over the next couple months. And then the competitions will be run through there. So you'll be able to access the data. And for the last two years, we've been very stealthy. We haven't really talked much. That's going to change now. We're on this podcast. We'll be talking to other people. Our goal is to excite people to dream bigger and to really try to use these more sophisticated techniques in biology. And part of that means paving the way and showing that, yeah, you can actually do that. So we're going to be a lot more open from now on. Amazing. And to wrap up, I always have, I always ask guests the, the exact same rapid fire questions. And these are very quick questions. Your answer could, doesn't necessarily need to be, but first of which is, what do you do for fun outside of work? Ooh, good question. So reading, definitely a lot of reading. I think I used to read a lot more, but I've been trying to push back into it because I think there's something really powerful about either reading fiction or nonfiction. Take your brain and move it somewhere else and then let you come back for a bit so you can think about things in a different way. Hiking with COVID, it's not like there's much to do other than going outside. And then I am quite partial to strategy games like Civilization, any of the Paradox game series like Europa Universalis. However, those games take 16 hours and it's not like I have 16 hours. So um I haven't been doing a lot of that recently, but yeah, just taking my mind off things, going for hikes, going skiing, something like that. Mm -hmm. And speaking of reading, what uh, book or books do you most often recommend to other people? If you want to get a really good framework and start thinking a lot about how nanotechnology can actually change the world, I really recommend The Engines of Creation by Eric Drexler. It's from the 80s. It is one of the first serious theses on how nanotechnology could actually work. Now, I disagree with some of the stuff, especially towards the end, but I think a lot of the beginning will sound familiar if you listen to this podcast because I didn't realize how much it inspired me when I read it like 15 years ago. That's one book. Another book that I highly recommend is the, what should we call it? Uh, on, on the fiction side, and especially on the science fiction side, the Rama trilogy. It's not actually a trilogy. The Rama series by Arthur C. Clarke. This is, in my opinion, one of the best sci-fi set of sci-fi novels ever written. It is very much hard science fiction, so it's, it, it can be a little technical um, and a little dry compared to more fantastical science fiction. But I think the reason why I love it so much is Arthur C. Clarke imagines a universe and a world and a, and a series of uh, events that occur that force you to think about how technology could be created in a totally different way. 
Because I think innovation really comes from you approaching a problem with a mindset and a framework that is totally different than what you did before, which is why it can be helpful to take your mind off things. It's why it can be helpful to have a highly diverse environment that you work in, because the more diversity you have in ways of thinking, the more likely you can find the right way to think about it. And Rama does an excellent job of this, of what would alien technology really look like if it actually wasn't related to humans at all? That sounds really fascinating. And I've never heard of it. So I'm definitely going to have to check it out. Yeah. Next, what advice would you give to someone starting their own company? I would recommend a couple of things. One, uh, try to find people, advisors who you trust quickly. Something I've learned since I've moved to the Silicon Valley is that there is no shortage of opinions, but there is a dire shortage of well-informed opinions. Everyone and their mother thinks they know exactly how to run a startup or something like that. Part of your job is figuring out who to listen to for what kind of advice, because most people, like, it's not that they're full of shit. It's more that their advice is so incredibly idiosyncratic to their experiences that it probably doesn't actually apply to you. And you're probably going to end up doing the wrong thing. And trying to find examples of people who have done things that you're really interested in that seem to have done a good job of it. And then for those situations, trying to get their advice, I think is really important. And that can help you in fundraising. That can help you in building a team. Yeah. And then the second thing, which I also think is as important, is you need to make sure you're building something that people actually care about, that people will pay you for. It is really easy to convince yourself. It is deceptively easy to convince yourself that what you're building is incredibly important. And of course, people will pay for it. And what I recommend is something called the Lean Launchpad methodology. Now, not the entire thing, but it's a way of assessing whether or not the, the technology you're thinking of building actually has value. And it's basically a strategy where you talk to people who are potential customers. You don't mention the technology to start off with, because if you do, they'll get excited about it and they'll tell you it's great. And then when you come back and say, can you pay for it? They say, eh. And then what you try to do is without talking about your technology, you talk about your customers' problems. And if they don't bring up any of the problems that your technology solves, or they, they mention it as low priority, they're not going to pay for it. So I, I think that, and there's NSFI Core is a National Science Foundation program for university spinouts, but even just the Lean Launchpad, or there's a book called The Mom Test. I just read that is a similar um, concept. It's a really good way of doing customer interviews where you can actually find out, is what you're building something that people are going to care about? Really fascinating. And I know that there's quite a few entrepreneurs who are listening to this podcast in our audience, so that'll be extremely helpful for them. Normally, I have two other questions, but it seems that we're out of time. So, Pavle Jeremek, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It has been so interesting. And like you said, it's pretty hard not to get excited about these kinds of things. Brand new data sets uh, being released in the open. So I'm sure a lot of people will have fun playing around with those. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.